This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to the French History Podcast. My name is Gary Chirot. Episode 8, The Greek Empire in Gaul. Today, we're going to be looking at a fascinating episode in France's history, where a Greek naval empire was transplanted from western Anatolia to the southern coast of France. Our story begins with the Greek city-state of Phocaea in 800 BCE. Phocaea is located on the western coast of Anatolia, what we now call Turkey, about halfway between its northern and southern tip. At this time, western Anatolia was populated almost entirely by Greeks, who crisscrossed the Aegean Sea. To the east, a number of powerful empires rose up, such as the Hittites, though most empires east of the Anatolian coast had their eyes set on the riches of Mesopotamia and Egypt and paid little attention to the Greeks, who were relatively poor at this time due to a lack of natural resources in Greater Greece. Phocaea, in particular, was lacking in natural resources. The land was agriculturally poor, and it didn't have any major industry, which forced the city to prosper entirely off of the sea, through the use of trade and piracy. The Phocaeans developed a pirate culture, extolling the virtues of strength, discipline, and cunning needed to be a a pirate. Far from being seen as wild bandits, many Greeks admired pirates. When the Phocaeans founded cities, this culture of piracy spread with them. One problem that faced the Phocaeans was that by the time they developed into a decent-sized city-state in the 7th century BCE, The great era of Mediterranean colonization by Greece and Phoenicia had already passed, meaning that the best lands in the eastern Mediterranean and northern Africa were already taken. In the 8th to 7th centuries, it founded a colony on the Hellespont, another on the Black Sea, and jointly founded a colony in Egypt with other Ionian Greek cities in order to trade with Egypt proper but these had to compete with established Phoenician and Greek city-states. As such, the only land the Phocaeans could colonize without fear of a contentious relationship with an established polis was the southern coast of Gaul, which led the Phocaeans to be the first among the Greeks to develop large ships used for long voyages. Herodotus remarks, Phocaeans were the earliest of the Greeks to make long sea voyages. It was they who discovered the Adriatic Sea, and Tyranian, and Iberia, and Tartessos, not sailing in round freight ships, but in fifty-oared vessels. It's that last country, 
that Herodotus mentions, which is of great concern to us. Tartessos was a kingdom in the southwest Iberian Peninsula, what we would call today Spain and Portugal, and was rich in all kinds of metals. Phocaea wanted to control trade between rich Tartessos and the rest of the Mediterranean and viewed that as the last great trade route that wasn't under the dominion of any powerful entity. Not that there weren't countries who tried to control the Strait of Gibraltar and hence control the trade between Tartessos and the rest of the Mediterranean. Since the 800s, Phoenicia, what we call today Lebanon, that country just north of Israel-Palestine on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, was colonizing northern Africa. Its most famous city-state was Carthage, though there were a number of city-states they established even closer to Tartessos, which the Iberians saw as a natural threat to their independence. The king of Tartessos turned to the incoming Greeks as a natural ally against the Phoenicians, who were trying to dominate the trade routes. The king was so grateful to the Greeks for challenging the Phoenicians that he paid for the city walls in Phocaea. Clearly, Tartessos was one of the richest cities of the age, if it could pay for walls on the other side of the Mediterranean, and Phocaea benefited greatly from being its ally and trading partner. In 600 BCE, Phocaea founded Massalia on the Mediterranean coast of southern Gaul, which is the precursor to modern-day Marseille. Massalia was a peninsula surrounded by mountains which made it defensible. It had a natural harbor which made it perfect for a seafaring people, and it was in an agriculturally fertile region. By all accounts, the perfect place for a city. At this point, you might be asking, what about the Gauls? To that, I would respond, what Gauls? The Mediterranean coast of Gaul was sparsely populated until the 600 BCE when the Greeks arrived. Gaelic tribes lived inland, close enough to threaten a raid, but probably not a prolonged siege of a fortified location because they weren't large enough in number. If we look at the geography of Europe and think back to the long, gradual expansion of the Indo-Europeans and later the Celts, this makes sense. The Indo-Europeans migrated west across the open spaces of Eastern Europe into northern France and later Britain. In order to make it to the Mediterranean, these peoples would have to follow the mountainous curve around the Alps. Likewise, the Celts, who originated in modern-day Austria, would head out in all directions, and those that went west would find bountiful land across northern France, where most of them would stay, while fewer migrated south. The Celts had little reason to settle along the Mediterranean because their culture wasn't known for sailing, having originated in Central Europe. Without the skills to sail or fish, Celtic settlements were less pronounced than in the north. Massalia's neighbor to the north was the Gallic tribe known as Liguria. After a brief period of peace, the Ligurians decided to seize the city by attempting to sneak into it during a festival. The Massalians were tipped off and ambushed the Ligurians. Since that time, Massalia had a contentious relation with the Gauls. The Gauls were a constant threat, 
but at the same time they were the source of Massalia's great wealth. The Gauls had an insatiable appetite for wine, olives, and salt. In exchange, they traded slaves to the Greeks to the point that tens of thousands were sold every year in the 3rd century BCE. All the while, precious metals were mined in the Pyrenees. Massalia held a monopoly on trade with Gaul and became incredibly rich. It wasn't long before it really started to grow into a full-fledged Greek polis that rivaled even the great cities of mainland Greece. The Massalians built an agora, stadium, theater, acropolis, cisterns, and city walls. They built two temples that were dedicated to the twins Apollo and Artemis. In a sense, these two deities played into the nature of the city, as Apollo was a champion of Greek identity and its scientific and cultural achievements as the god of physicians, while Artemis, as the wild goddess of the hunt, showed how they were in a wild new land. The city was so rich that it even had a mint, and its coins probably served as the basic currency of the entire southern region. Furthermore, they were a politically developed society, having been founded with a constitution and set of laws before they even arrived. As historian A. Trevor Hodge notes, Massalia was a timocracy, and no, that does not mean they were ruled by someone named Tim. In a timocracy, society is split into hierarchies based on wealth. Essentially, this meant any free male could rise to power, though heredity was obviously a huge determinant in one's role in society. The city was ruled by the 600 wealthiest citizens who held their offices for life, though the daily leadership was overseen by an executive council of 15. This city developed into an economic, maritime, and cultural powerhouse in the 6th century BCE, which keep in mind, at this time, Rome was a collective of different herdsmen's huts. Hodge goes on to recount some of their laws, a few of which are so interesting I thought I would share. One of the laws was a ban on women drinking wine. This was probably to protect any fetuses from developing deformities, but also due to sexist attitudes that women had to be controlled. Another law held that suicide was legal, but only if done the proper way. Any person who wanted to kill themselves could appeal to the government to commit suicide, and if approved, would be given hemlock. In an incredibly ironic historical twist, mimes were banned from the theater as they were seen as immoral. Culturally, Massalia was the center of the Western Mediterranean, producing the kind of art and poetry that had the complexity and richness of the Near East. While the Massalians were respected for their arts, they were considered effeminate by their Italian neighbors due to men wearing floor-length tunics, much like women's dresses. Furthermore, as a Greek city, Massalia was considered a place of loose morals, so that the phrase, going to Massalia, was like our modern-day saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Now, our story turns back to the home city, where things have started to take a sharp turn for the worse. 
Sometime around 550 BCE, Phocaea was conquered by the kingdom of Lydia, which ruled the western coast of Anatolia. Then, in 547 BCE, the Lydian king, Croesus, made the most infamous inquiry to the Oracle of Delphi in history. He asked the Oracle if he should attack Persia, to which the Oracle responded, If you do, a great empire will fall. Croesus believed the Oracle spoke of Persia. He assembled his armies and made the disastrous decision to fight Cyrus the Great and the Achaemenid Persian Empire. His armies were crushed, and it was his empire, not Persia, that fell. Unfortunately, Phocaea was not spared Persia's wrath, and was put to the siege in 546 BCE. Seeing the hopelessness of the situation, the citizens decided to flee to the island of Corsica, where they established a colony known as Alalia. Unfortunately for the Phocaeans, Carthage saw this settlement as a direct threat to its growing empire. Oh, so on that note, uh, we do need to do a brief detour and bring Carthage into the picture. While Phocaea originally flourished between 800 and 600 BCE, Carthage rose as well. While Phocaea originally flourished between 800 to 600 BCE, Carthage rose as well. It sought to supplant the Greeks as the major trading partner in the Iberian Peninsula and set up colonies along the eastern coast of Iberia, across North Africa, and in Sardinia to counter Greek colonization of Sicily, which was then known as Magna Graecia, or Greater Greece which challenged the Punic colonies on the western side of the island. When the Phocaeans set up shop on Corsica, Carthage viewed this as another Greek threat to its own rising power in the western Mediterranean. What made this even worse is that after the Phocaeans arrived there, they took up their old pirating ways, plundering Carthaginian and Etruscan ships. Outraged, Carthage and the Etruscans united to punish the Phocaeans, attacking them with 60 ships to match the Phocaean fleet of 60. At least that's the numbers Herodotus recounts. Modern estimates vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy, and easy to prepare, Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it. And with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory 50 to get 50% off. That again is French History 50 
at factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50. Sign up now. Your stomach will thank you later. What ensued was the Battle of Alalia, sometime around 540 BCE. The Greeks won the battle, but they realized they were caught between Carthage and the Etruscans, and so abandoned Corsica. According to Herodotus, the Phocaeans won, yet it was a Cadmian victory, for they lost forty of their ships, and the twenty that remained were useless, their rams being twisted awry. Of those Phocaeans who were captured, they were stoned to death or sold into slavery. Those remaining Phocaeans knew they could not stay and fled to Regium in Italy. The fall of the mother city and the defeat of their inhabitants meant that the colony of Massalia was the dominant naval power in the region, dominating the western Mediterranean north of Carthaginian holdings. It is from here that Phocaea disappears from history, much as the Phoenician city of Tyre did, having both been captured by greater powers and their colonies, Massalia and Carthage respectively, vied for domination of the western Mediterranean. In 390 BCE, when the Gauls sacked Rome, Massalia made a contribution of gold to the city to help them rebuild. Massalia knew it was surrounded by Gauls, to the east were the Etruscans who hated them, and the ever-expanding Carthaginians to the south hated them as well, meaning that they knew they had to make friends, and there really was only one option. Rome. Hodge notes that because of this gift, Rome gave Massalians equal rights as Romans, immunity from taxes, and reserved seats at the theater on top of it all. This friendship would pay off in dividends later on, as Rome expanded beyond anyone's imagination. For the next few centuries, Massalia fought alongside Rome in her expansionist wars, supplying her with the naval power she needed to complement her land army. Around the same time that Rome was sacked, Massalia was besieged by the Ligurians and chose to pay them off from their enormous cash reserves rather than draining their strength fighting them only to lose to a future enemy. This was a common tactic of Massalia to pay off enemies rather than fight them. Because Massalia was so rich, it could afford this, and it could continue to trade with the Gauls, effectively bringing them under their economic influence, even if they lacked military influence. These economic ties meant that the Ligurians could never be too aggressive against their southern neighbor for fear of driving away all of the resources it pulled in. Thus, through trade, Massalia was able to limit its opposition among the Ligurians. Wars and raids still occurred, but there remained a love-hate relationship between the Greeks and the Gauls, which gave Massalia the space it needed to create an empire that stretched from northwestern Italy, across southern Gaul, and even into Spain, or what was called Iberia at the time. It founded colonies in what is modern-day Arles, Agde, Avignon, Cannes, Monaco, and Nice, 
among others. It was able to expand because of its incredible riches it gained through its trade monopoly with the Gauls, which was the largest untapped market for the Mediterranean world. The most important trade was Massalian wine for Gallic slaves. In Italy alone, 15,000 Gallic slaves were imported per year into Rome by the 2nd century BCE, of which a large proportion came by Massalia. While Massalia would decline in military power, while Rome grew, culturally it entered a golden age in the late 4th century BCE and its explorers were the most famous of the era. Around 325 BCE, the Massalian explorer Pythias voyaged to Britain, becoming the first Mediterranean person in recorded history to reach the British Isles. He claimed to sail far beyond Britain, reaching the Baltics, possibly Scandinavia, the Arctic Circle, and according to himself, a magical island named Thule, though all of these are doubted as Pythias was prone to exaggeration. At least, historians think so, as we have yet to find any magical islands. He wasn't even the only famous explorer. Uthimenes sailed down as far as Senegal and explored the West African coast. These explorers went farther than any known Greek had ever gone outside the Mediterranean world and brought with them tales of strange cultures, animals, and lands that fascinated their listeners and readers. Anyone who knows their Roman history knows of the infamous Second Punic War between 218 to 201 BCE, in which Hannibal led an 80,000-man army complete with war elephants over the Alps and into Rome, a war which decided the fate of the entire western Mediterranean and set Rome on a course to be a mighty empire. Massalia naturally sided with Rome in the Second Punic War against the Carthaginian and Gallic invasion, though it reportedly did very little. It certainly didn't impede Hannibal, who marched right through southern Gaul unimpeded, though in retrospect, the idea of standing up to the great general and his war elephants with a relatively weak land army seems pretty stupid to me, and they certainly made the right choice to just watch him march through. Instead of direct fighting, Massalia curried messages to Rome about happenings in Iberia and gave general naval aid. When the war ended, Rome took control of the western Mediterranean, controlling Italy, Corsica, Sardinia, Iberia, and some parts of southern Gaul. Rome's dominance meant that Massalia declined. It could no longer resort to pirating, as Rome was the only entity left to steal from, and no one was crazy enough to challenge them. Furthermore, Massalia no longer controlled the riches of Iberia, which came under Roman authority. From here on, Massalia was a wealthy city, but it was just one of many in a new Roman-dominated world. While it fell from importance, Massalia experienced a good 50 years of peace and continued prosperity, which by all accounts led to the city continuing to grow fantastically wealthy. 
or maybe I should say wealthier, because they've been rich for a very long time. By 154 BCE, Massalia was under continual assault by the Gauls, who were furious at its support of Rome in the Second Punic War. While the city never fell, its colonies were often sacked, and they had to be saved by Rome. In 122 BCE, after yet another Gallic invasion, Rome annexed the region and established a garrison at Aquae Sextia, or as it is now known, Aix-en-Provence. This gave Rome control over the region and the very important land trade route to Iberia, fully bypassing Massalia. Our next episode will turn to the Gauls, but I'm sure many of you are wondering whatever becomes of Massalia and the Greeks who wandered so far from home. To briefly end our story, Massalia continued to get even richer for the next hundred years under Roman protection, but these riches led to its downfall. In 48 BCE, Rome fell into a civil war as Julius Caesar led the Populares, who championed the cause of the plebeians or the commoners, and Pompey, who led the Optimates, or the wealthy aristocrats. Since Massalia was rich and ruled by an aristocratic elite, it naturally sided with Pompey, at which point Julius Caesar ordered a siege which lasted six months and devastated the city. It fell in 49 BCE and was absorbed into Rome, with its name changing from the Greek Massalia to the Latin Massalia. The entire region was organized into a Roman territory called Provincia Romana, known today as La Provence in French or the province in English. It wasn't until much later on during the Middle Ages that this city rose to prominence again as Marseille, which I will detail probably much, much later. So what lasting effects did Massalia have on France, which was then known as Gaul? Well, perhaps most importantly, they brought wine. What would France be if the Greeks hadn't brought their world-famous knowledge of winemaking to France? But jokes aside, Massalia made Gaul much more cosmopolitan. Before Massalia opened up trade with Gaul, it could be said that there was a Mediterranean world and an Atlantic world. Celts traded all along the Gallic coast, trading goods from northern Spain, up through Gaul, and into Cornwall and Wales. Meanwhile, there existed a vast trade networks in the Mediterranean. Massalia opened up Gaul to Mediterranean influence, bringing these massive trade networks together for the first time. It brought writing, coinage, customs, law, and beliefs to the Gauls from the Greco-Romans. While the Gauls may not have adopted any particular idea or custom, they at least became familiar with them. The Greco-Romans were no longer strange, fantastical others. They were just 
different people, possibly effeminate, promiscuous people, the sort that are more likely to go to parties and less likely to run into battle screaming like a true manly man would. But they were just people with their own customs who sometimes could be allied with against other rival Gaelic tribes. This is incredibly important as it plays into our forthcoming history of the Gauls. Without Massalia, the Gauls would probably not have submitted so easily to Roman rule. Julius Caesar may have conquered Gaul militarily, but thanks to Massalia, the Gauls were already connected to a Mediterranean trade network, understood Roman custom, and had the ability to understand Roman rule and the system when it came to them. Thus, Massalia played an integral role in bringing this land into the Roman world. Finally, it is worth noting that southern France to this day has a very different flavor than the rest of France. Of course, every region of France has its own charm, but La Provence truly is unique. Part of this is the natural byproduct of being on the Mediterranean. Living in an area with beaches and palm trees naturally sets it apart from the pine and oak tree-dominated northern forest. But a specifically Greco-Roman culture and history remains and is a celebrated part of local heritage. As always, donations keep the podcast going. So if you would like to visit our page and either make a one-time donation or become a Patreon, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for listening. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.